Hello, I'm Alexander Rose, the Executive Director here at Long Now, and I am an infrastructure nerd. Everywhere I travel, all my pictures are of infrastructure and almost never people. That's why I first started following the work of our two speakers tonight, Jeffrey Mayno and Nicola Twilley. Jeffrey spoke at the interval, Long Now's Cafe and Bar, back in 2017, about the ways that burglars use architecture tactically. A year later, Nicola spoke to us about the truly vast artificial cryosphere that humanity has built as the backbone of our food system. Two very fascinating and deep stories about infrastructure and the sometimes unexpected ways that humans both use and abuse it. The last time Nicola spoke at Long Now, she told me that she was working with Jeff on a book about quarantine. And then all of a sudden, quarantine became a lot more relevant. But the story of quarantine isn't just relevant right now. It's one that stretches over the centuries, from the Black Death to the potential future of interplanetary travel. Before we get started, a quick reminder. The Long Now Foundation is a nonprofit and is entirely supported by donors and members like you. If you are already a member, thank you. Your support means the world to us. If not, please consider becoming the newest member of the Long Now Foundation and supporting this series. It only takes a few minutes to set up, and after that, you'll be connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. So, with that in mind, let's hear from Jeff and Nicola, who spoke to Long Now in August about their new book, Until Proven Safe, The History and Future of Quarantine. So what we wanted to do tonight is Nikki and I would be presenting uh, just some of the themes from the book Until Proven Safe. The most important thing I'd say with uh, any kind of conversation about quarantine is just making sure that we know what we're talking about from a vocabulary point of view, that we're using the right definitions and, and, and thus the correct words. As is still the case, even in the medical community, um, the words isolation and quarantine are very often used interchangeably. So isolation in brief, medical isolation, means that you know you're infected, you know you have a disease, you know that something is dangerous, um, it's been diagnosed as such, and you're keeping it spatially or temporally separate from you, and it's in a state of isolation. So for example, when President Trump tested positive for COVID and then, and then tweeted that he was undergoing a quarantine process in true Trumpian fashion, that was the wrong use of the word. He was actually undergoing an isolation process. But in any case, uh, quarantine then, and the reason why we were really drawn to it, uh, quarantine requires uncertainty. Quarantine means you do not know if you have an infection. You don't know if you have a disease. You don't know if this, this thing approaching you is infected or contaminated. It might be an object or an animal or, or a relative. But the whole point is that you are unsure of whether or not this, this thing, this person, this entity um, will be a, a risk to you. And quarantine is the act of keeping yourself separate from it to see if that threat emerges from within. And so when looked at that way, quarantine immediately turns into a really interesting series of metaphors. Uh, it becomes the possibility that we all have something monstrous lurking within ourselves, but we have to give it the space and time to be revealed. Uh, it turns into something where uh, it's not just metaphoric, but even has religious overtones or theological overtones. And that's something that is actually augmented or emphasized even by the word quarantine itself, which comes from the old Venetian dialect for quarantena, which means 40. Quaranta journey is 40 days. Quarantine is supposed to be a 40-day process. 40 was not chosen numerically for medical purposes. In fact, originally, quarantine was 30 days. It was a trentine, a trentina. But... 
40 was a way of tying this experience back to biblical notions of, you know, Christ's alleged 40 days and 40 nights in the desert, the 40 days of Lent, the 40 days and 40 nights of rain that we encounter in the story of Noah's Ark, even the 40 as a just sort of a general number that is approximately the length of a generation in, in, in Hebrew culture. And so 40 then uh, ties quarantine back to this sort of religious metaphoric sense that was something that was really exciting that we wanted to explore with the book. But then fundamentally, I'd say quarantine is the way that we model the unknown, and we often do that through a lens uh, or a filter of fear. And quarantine is, is, is how we give shape to the, the period of encountering it. Yeah, so because, as Jeff says, uh, when someone is being quarantined, they are not a certain danger. We merely suspect that they might pose a risk. Um, you get into the question of risk perception, and as we all know, risk perception is subject to bias, whether unconscious or otherwise. It's also a very dangerous and powerful tool. It's one of the few instances in today's world where you are an Anglo-Saxon legal thought, for example, where you are essentially guilty until proven innocent. You are contagious until proven safe. In the book, we tell the story of the American plan, which is the largest recent mass quarantine that most Americans have never heard of. It started in 1917, and under its powers, tens of thousands of so-called loose women were detained on suspicion of spreading venereal disease, um, and there was no legal recourse for them. So th this is something to bear in mind with quarantine, a long history that something that is fundamentally based on uncertainty and suspicion risks then giving a scientific endorsement to existing biases um, and, and our existing perceived monsters, as it were. Um, and so a great example, I think, of just how foundational quarantine and isolation and the logics of separation are to the mythology, in particular here of the West, is the story of Alexander's Gates. Uh, this is something that we describe in the book. The legend of Alexander's Gates are that Alexander the Great, the conqueror, um, allegedly whilst leading his army through the Caucasus region of Central Asia, had his workers construct and weld together huge iron gates. These gates would stand in, the, in a mountain pass somewhere in the Caucasus and would hold at bay a kind of monstrous eastern other, thus it being the Caucasus Mountains, helping to literally define the, the Caucasian West against this kind of seething world of deformity and incoming monstrosity. And so actually the myth was taken so seriously at the time, even though it's just a folktale, um, that actually maps of the time often feature a band of iron in, in, one, in certain parts of the map that were re meant to represent this uh, idea of Alexander's Gates kind of holding the, the east at bay. There's an in interesting individual, um, Stephen Asma, who wrote a book that looks at monsters and how they're figured in Western mythology, what it means when we come up with a new monster, what that monster represents, how we crystallize a certain series of fears into that figure. And he writes about uh, Alexander's Gates, and it's quite interesting that, as is the case with many of the stories of quarantine, including some that we'll talk about this evening, often quarantine fails because of some very, very small vulnerability, some minor event or some minor actor or character who uh, comes into the picture and, and makes the entire scheme fall apart. In this case, it's quote-unquote a lowly fox. Um, a fox, actually, uh, being a curious uh, animal, um, digs through from the western side, under the gates, and into the monster zone, as, as Asma calls it. The monsters are kind of you know, shocked and surprised to see a fox and follow it back into the western world. And this is what Asma calls the, the realm of the reprobate is, is unleashed upon the west. 
But this is just a new version, or rather a different version of the doomsday myth that when these gates that you know, keep our world separate from the world of monsters falls apart, you know, we become a victim of the things that we've been trying to hold separate from us for, for in this case, thousands of years. When in the 1950s it first became sort of clear that rockets were actually sufficiently advanced that we were maybe going to get to space, people started to worry what will happen when alien biospheres collide. Planetary quarantine became the planetary protection which became uh, international law and it encompasses two different strands. So one is forward contamination that's bringing Earth life to extraterrestrial environments. A couple of reasons for this. One, uh, Earth life might wipe out alien life, and also it might just make it really hard to know if we found alien life for bringing life with us. There's also back contamination, and that is when we are bringing samples or people back from extraterrestrial environments. Now, this became an issue during the Apollo missions, and so it involved, the CDC sort of officially said, hey, you're not bringing the astronauts back unless they go into quarantine. And NASA said, oh, well, we didn't think there was life on the moon, so we weren't planning that and had to scramble. So they retrofitted an Airstream trailer, put the uh, astronauts and the lunar samples in it, brought them back to Houston where they had constructed the lunar receiving lab, essentially a quarantine facility, and then they declared a federal quarantine there to prevent the risk of contaminating Earth with extraterrestrial life, which is the only time there's been a quarantine against extraterrestrial life in the federal register. And then, you know, eventually realized there was no need for that. There was no life on the moon. But what's interesting about this is if quarantine is about uncertainty, then planetary quarantine is sort of a fractal example of uncertainty. We have no idea if there is life elsewhere in the universe, and if so, if it poses a danger to Earth life. We have no idea if Earth life would pose a danger to it, or even if Earth life would be capable of replicating in extraterrestrial environments. So what do you do when you're trying to minimize risk with no data and yet kind of existential stakes. But what we wanted to really do throughout the book was see where quarantine was being experimented with or the technical limits of isolation were being pushed today. Um, where would such a person go? This is uh, down in a salt mine known as the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant. It's outside Carlsbad, New Mexico. It's near the border with Texas. So to be clear, it's not a quarantine facility for nuclear waste. Uh, which I'll get to in a second, it's an isolation facility. And on top of that, it's a pilot plant, so it's, a, it's an experimental facility. But so this is where uh, nuclear waste is being buried by the U.S. government. It's not the kind of nuclear waste that you might picture, but it's nuclear waste in the sense of fabrics and gowns and gloves and scientific equipment like microscopes, desks, pens, papers that were used by scientists in laboratories where they were developing the nation's nuclear arsenal. And so those materials that may, may or may not be contaminated, but also do pose a risk to the biosphere, are being shipped to New Mexico. They're being uh, put into giant caskets, and then they're being lowered into the depths of the earth, 2,150 feet, into these huge salt deposits. The room itself is very roughly the size of a tennis court. And then there's 56 of those rooms throughout these panels. So when you go down into the depths and drive around through the salt, you know, you can often enter into hallways where it's difficult even necessarily to see the very end of it. 
But so there are several interesting things here. One is that the salt is actually a kind of a plastic mineral. What I mean by that is that when you apply enough pressure to it, salt moves almost like a marshmallow, or it was described to us as molasses in January. And so when you look closely, and you can see it a little bit in this photograph, the salt is actually crushing its way back into these corridors and rooms. Um, but that's by design. So salt is not only resistant to radiation and can block it, so it's already a shield against these, the radioisotopes that are being emitted from the, uh, from the waste, or, or, or should there be an accident. Um, but also the whole point is that once humans abandon this architectural structure and uh, no longer go down into it, the salt will just continue to crush. It'll squeeze in and basically form a kind of crystalline tomb for all of the things that are buried within it. There's a, uh, a project that really caught our attention because it was something that we found throughout the history of quarantine, which was how do you communicate risk to individuals and to people and how do they believe what you're saying? So if you're trying to convince people thousands of generations from now and you're dealing with nuclear waste that's going to be dangerous for at least 10,000 and possibly many millions of years, how do you convince them that this is in fact a dangerous substance, that they should not in fact dig it up? and that it's something to be avoided. You know, we saw even during COVID-19 that people didn't believe that COVID and still don't believe that it's a real disease, that think that the vaccine is actually a bioweapon. You know, there are people that don't, if you don't trust the information that's coming to you, why on earth would you trust some sign that you found that was written 8,000 years ago and it's in the middle of the desert telling you not to dig? So that may sound like a very niche uh, uh, thing to be concerned about, but in fact, um, there's a lot of real worry that, that WIP is going to be disinterred. And so beginning in the 1980s, uh, there was a series of Department of Energy funded roundtables that looked at bringing together semioticians, anthropologists, linguists, experts in religion, even experts in radiation sickness, and brought them all together to kind of brainstorm what we could do to prepare future generations to believe the message of, of danger. Some is kind of titanic land art. Um, there's one that's a giant landscape of thorns where made of concrete. Uh, the idea apparently being that you know, aggressive geometric shapes would be just so terrifying that people will leave and they, won't, they would never consider digging there. Another one, one of my personal favorites, was, a, was a, the, I guess the Department of Energy in the 1980s was so uh, um, sensitive to the site of Edvard Munch's famous painting, The Scream. But that, that was considered so terrifying in the 1980s, apparently, that Edvard Munch's The Scream was going to be reproduced at various scales throughout the WIP site in order to scare future generations from digging there. Another one was the Ray Cat proposal, which was actually to make cats genetically modify domestic house cats so that if cats came into the region and there was, there was loose radiation and they radionuclides in the environment, the cats would change color and potentially even emit fluorescent light. And somehow people with these cats would conclude from that that there must be a leaking underground radio a radiation source and they'll leave the greater Carlsbad area and, and go to where their cats no longer glow. The whole point of WIP is that we can take something, a glove that may or may not have traces of plutonium on it, we can take that from a site somewhere else in the United States, bring it all the way to New Mexico and bury it ostensibly for eternity. But so uh, to do all of that with billions of dollars in spent, it was a 100,000 page environmental application in order to get WIP constructed. It was thus like the lowly fox that brings down Alexander's gates. It was eye-opening and sobering to realize that, in, or to hear rather, that in 2014, kitty litter almost undid the entire thing. So there was an explosion and a barrel uh, erupted uh, down in the depths of WIP and released radiation throughout its own little panel. It's so much so that it caused $500 million worth of damage. Uh, parts of WIP uh, can no longer be used for their function, which ironically is to bury nuclear waste, uh, but it's considered too dangerous to go into them and they've been sealed off. Um, and radionuclides actually were vented beyond the site. But the guy who figured out what happened realized that someone had packed 
um, these barrels using the wrong kind of kitty litter. They'd used organic kitty litter, which is based as a wheat-based absorbent. It sounds really good. It's organic. Um, but normally it would be a clay-based absorbent, which can help with the, the radionuclides. And so there was a chemical reaction between the wheat and the radiation that caused the explosion. The same person who figured that out realized that 700 barrels were packed with the same kitty litter. And so far, only one of them has exploded. So while we were at WIP, we were reminded of this strange contraption, which is the high-level isolation unit in London, the Royal Free Hospital in London, in England, which is used as uh, an isolation facility or a quarantine facility, mostly for hemorrhagic diseases. So this is me inside a Trexler unit. But the way it works is that the person who is either suspected of having Ebola or has it, hops inside this tent, and the doctors and nurses caring for them just kind of sort of insert themselves into these suits built into the tent wall. This is me inside it uh, immediately after the Dr. Jacobs told me that they had cleaned it using an experimental decontamination procedure after the last inhabitant left. Uh, that was a Scottish nurse with Ebola. So. Um, there I am, there he is, and he, as he explains, all he has to do, and I, I quote him, is invaginate himself into the wall uh, to provide care. And so what, what's interesting about this is the UK is completely unique in doing isolation this way. And, and actually, Mike Jacobs told us, it, they get rid ridiculed for this. People laugh at them. Everywhere else in the world provides care for people with infectious diseases using PPE. And this is, uh, this is Jeff. You might not recognize him here on the left. In full PPE with our guide to quarantine, who we met in Venice, who turned out to be the chief scientific officer in charge of Italy's COVID response later. He had Jeff dress up in PPE to sort of show us what this is like. It's extremely hot. It's extremely hard to put on and take off without the risk of infection. That's something that people train repeatedly and still get wrong. And you also look like an alien. Whereas in the Trexler unit, when you're invaginated into the wall, you are not as hot. You don't look like an alien, and anyone can do it. So um, non-trained experts can do it, and also family members can do it. So this became interesting to us, and apparently interesting to others too. We were talking to doctors who were caring for Ebola patients in the DRC in 2018, and they were telling us we have a really hard time persuading people to go into quarantine and isolation because the culture is don't be separate from your family, particularly when you're sick. That's just absolutely not the right thing to do. And so people would just resist quarantine and isolation. Well, Congolese doctors saw the Trexler unit and adapted it for use in the Congo. These are these low-budget versions of the cube that have been extremely effective. And to us, that was kind of a reminder that quarantine can be redesigned and that something that is keeping you separate from your community for your protection and for their protection cannot still be designed in such a way that it keeps you connected to your community. 
Interestingly, and we were fascinated to see this, at the start of the COVID pandemic, this was adopted in, in the US too. So there were some prototype units being rolled out in Boston in June. Um, that's a hug suit built into the wall of, a, of one of these cubes. And what's fascinating about this is, you probably remember, there was this shortage of PPE. Well, one of these units replaces 200 full sets of PPE again allows family members to visit and everyone doesn't have to look like an alien and it can pop up anywhere so when the hospitals were getting overwhelmed this was a viable sort of way to provide care outside of a ward so really interesting for us to be imaginative and redesign quarantine as an experience um, so one of the images that we opened the book with is a description of how quarantine facilities first kind of came into the national consciousness at the beginning of COVID. Um, there was this really extraordinary scene that happened up uh, outside Seattle, Washington, where the local health uh, authority had purchased an Econo Lodge motel uh, because there was no place for, for quarantining. They, they didn't have the infrastructure or the architecture or the facilities to do it. And so they sent a crew out wearing PPE. They stepped out of a van, walked over to the Econolide sign, and then just started painting it black. Uh, it was like a, you know, a, a Slayer video. And so they just gradually, uh, the sign that's set is still glowing, Econolodge, uh, is just gradually replaced by this matte black rectangle, like a pirate flag kind of hanging over the street that just basically said, the previous function of this building has been canceled. Um, this is now a quarantine facility. So quarantine uh, it presents an interesting infrastructural challenge. We've already talked about some of the logistics of it, how to get waste or how to get infected people or potentially infected people rather from one place to another. To another. Um, you know, how one can interact with them if you're a doctor or a family. But then finding enough space in a time of mass quarantine is, is a huge architectural challenge. And so someone else that we met for the book was a now former head of the Army Corps of Engineers. Um, which is the U.S. agency who effectively is put in charge of building things, of making, changing the landscape, uh, building dams and levees and hospitals and whatnot. And what was quite interesting was that he pointed out some things about the otherwise perceived aesthetic limitations of the American landscape, the sort of cookie-cutterness aspect of it, the fact that hotel chains, when you drive out of a city, you'll see the same series of, of, of the three or four different hotels, three or four different gas stations, three or four different subdivisions that are all designed and constructed by the same company. Um, this kind of similarity, this, this J.G. Ballardian uh, identical nature of the American landscape actually lends itself very well to mass quarantine. One of the things we did while we were reporting the book is we went to pandemic simulations. And so these are essentially like role-playing exercises where world leaders, domestic leaders gather and try to game out their responses to a disease outbreak. Uh, one of the ones, the, the most recent ones we went to before COVID-19 was called Event 201, so named because the World Health Organization deals with an average of 200 epidemic events each year, and they figured it was only a matter of time before one of those had pan global pandemic potential. As it happens, Event 201, which happened in October 2019, was simulating a novel coronavirus. The thing about these simulations is you saw the same mistakes made again and again, and each time, you know, the, the organizers would write reports with recommendations, most of which echoed the last report. But one of the most sort of striking 
features of them is that each time we were there, people would say, ah, okay, so this is where we implement quarantine. And then they would move on as if quarantine was a drug or a vaccine, not as if quarantine was a lived experience that people have, that has to be implemented. It has to be enforced. It has to be endured. People have to go somewhere and do something. And so that aspect of quarantine was completely overlooked as a, as a lived experience. The fact of the matter is quarantine itself is extremely boring and it always has been. There are letters from, you know, the priest in charge of managing quarantine in 1600s Genoa what are these women I'm in charge of supposed to do all day? There are letters from 18th century aristocrats saying, I've written letters to everyone I know, I've tallied up all my expense reports, and now I'm going slowly mad. You know, and then you have COVID-19 where, you know, the British public spent half their waking hours watching Netflix, literally calculated during during the first lockdown. So it's boring and everyone knows that. So how to fix it? We spoke to a boredom researcher for the book and she said, well, you know, boredom, it, it's not really a, a thing, it's just a signal that you're not engaged in what you're doing and you're not finding it meaningful. Quarantine should be a meaningful experience. Um, you are doing something, making a personal sacrifice for the public good. It just doesn't feel like that. So how do we redesign, reimagine it, give it some experience design? And that sounds frivolous, but it isn't. And now is the moment to do it because we are going to experience quarantine again in our lifetimes. Now is the time with the insights that we have from COVID-19 to ask what should quarantine look like in the future? Uh, so the the future of quarantine, you know, I think, as you can see from what we're talking about, it really doesn't require a technical solution. It requires more of an emotional or even spiritual or uh, a narrative solution, something that gives quarantine meaning, however you find that in your own life. But nevertheless, the technical perfection of quarantine is something that many, many people are now trying to, to figure out as healthcare, d data, and uh, smart home sort of technology uh, all combine into one uh, massive edifice. One of the things that we come back to is actually th these companies that are moving into the quarantine space, moving into a way to try to make quarantine so that it can be predictive, it can be algorithmically implemented, it can be more precise. It can be something where you know one single individual out of thousands can be chosen, can be found, maybe even preemptively quarantined to save the 999 other people. And the, the, the technical possibility of that goal um, without necessarily thinking of the moral or ethical risks or even the constitutional risks that come with pursuing it. In this case, uh, we're actually looking at a, a patent diagram. There was an actual patent filed by Amazon so that its a, a echo digital uh, speaker could recognize sounds of illness and depression in people who were uh, speaking or coughing around it. So if you are coughing or sniffling, it might offer a, you could purchase cough drops. Uh, you could subscribe to something on Amazon. If you sounded depressed or lonely, it would offer maybe uh, something from your, a previously viewed video selection that might cheer you up again. The notion that a private company would step into those kinds of mental health decisions, public health decisions, is something that I think has some relatively ominous uh, overtones for, for the future. But what we see emerging, I think, out of the assisted living world for elder care 
is, I think, the future of the domestic environment and thus the future of quarantine. So you see a lot of uh, assisted living facilities getting technology uh, implemented and integrated into the rooms themselves, using things like Doppler radar for telling if a body is moving through a room and at what pace. Because if, if you suddenly change gait dramatically, there might be a physical injury uh, involved. Sensors in the floors that can tell if someone has fallen over so that they can send nursing staff in to, to rescue you. They can also tell if there's a gait difference. Maybe you've had a stroke. Um, cameras behind the mirrors that can see skin tones. So maybe um, you are having cardiac issues or you have a fever or some other kind of uh, bodily event has, has happened to you. But so this medical diagnostic equipment, uh, which, which at the moment is just part of you know, taking care of the elderly, will undoubtedly trickle down into everyday domestic spaces. But so what happens with this, and I think what the risk is, is that if you already have a world, which is the world we live in, where an internet search giant has access to things that we've been looking up, you know, Google tried something several years ago called Google Flu Trends that was looking at whether or not you could tell, you could find hotspots for flu outbreaks in the United States based on what, thing, what people were searching for. Um, if that same company also owns some of these other diagnostic uh, appliances that will be, live in the smart homes of the future, if they also control your front door lock or if they own the camera that you have at your front door, you're beginning to see the outlines of a system that could say, not unlock the front door until you show proof of vaccination or not let you, for that matter, leave, the, leave your house unless you're going to a doctor's appointment and there is actually a car on the way to pick you up. You have the possibility of algorithmically induced quarantine being uh, implemented by the buildings themselves. Uh, in a way that escapes many of the constitutional or public health concerns or even ways to push back against quarantine that we haven't really gotten into tonight but that we talk about in the book, a right of appeal, that kind of thing. Um, another risk, uh, very briefly though, is just that there's a false promise in all of this and I think it's that um, if we give private corporations the ability to make healthcare decisions for us or for their algorithms to make healthcare decisions for us, we're assuming that public health is actually the goal of what they're doing. Um, but of course, a, a well populace, a healthy populace, healthy customers are not necessarily what they have in mind. Um, and so, you know, it isn't necessarily the, the greatest thing for this business market to suddenly help everyone get over the, the illnesses that they're being held in their homes for. And I think that that's one of the, the certainly one of the moral risks of, of, of the future of quarantine. The other thing is this belief that big data and algorithmic analysis will give us enough information to make quarantines ever more precise, to turn this blunt medieval instrument into something for the 21st century that hardly hurts at all. It's a, it sounds compelling, uh, tech companies believe they can do it, but as weather forecasters have found, you can feed more data into the model, you can have sensors everywhere, and you still can't tell what the weather is gonna be like here in Fort Mason, in a month's time. So there is a limit to what can be modeled. The other thing that digital technology enabled quarantine seems to promise is, you know, the, the, the idea that we can slice and dice quarantine. Politicians were quick to leap on that to say, well, let's have these color-coded tiers and let's have these micro restrictions where you can be with three families if it's outside, but only one family inside and you can have people in a support bubble. And this was all sort of calculated and yet, those kinds of quarantine restrictions, those kinds of restrictions on mobility and interaction 
proved less effective because the logic behind them was so opaque and appeared not to be even understood by the politicians who were advocating them, let alone followed by them in most cases. And so that unfair and unenforceable, essentially, kind of precision quarantine actually may well not be the solution. And so with that, I'm gonna bring us to a close by saying, it was really bizarre to be finishing a book about quarantine during COVID-19 and lockdown, but it was actually more so frustrating. We, in the history of quarantine, saw every single mistake that happened during COVID-19 had happened before. And there's a natural urge to say, well, when the pandemic's over, can we move on? Can we forget? Can we not learn? And that's the wrong move. We need to redesign quarantine. Um, not just because we're going to experience it again, as I said, but also because it is shaping the world around us. And I give just a, a, a quick example here. The passport, which is now the uh, piece of paper that regulates our movement around the world, its ancestor is the health passport, which was first pioneered in what is now Italy in the uh, 1500s as a way of avoiding quarantine. You would get one of these documents and it would say that you were coming from a place that was healthy and not diseased and that would allow you to dodge quarantine. Well, that has hardened into a piece of paper that determines exit and entry around the world. And the same thing is true. We In the book, we trace national borders that are former quarantine lines. We tra trace bureaucracies, even the United Nations itself, back to uh, disease control measures. You can see the start of this happening now. This is the Alipay system in China that is being used to regulate movement. That this kind of thing, it's a temporary thing, an emergency thing that starts happening during pandemics and then hardens into the new reality. And so yes, we live in a world that is shaped by quarantine's past and our future is being built from today's lockdown as we speak. Cool. Thank you. Well, thank you guys. That was fantastic and could not be more appropriate of a topic. What was interesting, I think, obviously about this quarantine that we're in is that in some ways it was the least boring quarantine in history, right? Like we had, we had access to world, you know, most of the world, a lot of the world, I guess, had access to world news. We could a lot of people could work from home um, in certain types of ways, or at least communicate from home. How, do you think that that's a, where do you think that fits in the spectrum of the history of quarantine? I guess I'd say a couple things there. I mean, it's, it's one of the things that really struck me about the lockdown for COVID was how many people were inspired to change their lives precisely because they got to see their life through a kind of intolerable lens of, of a Groundhog Day-like permanence. You know, this is the thing. The very things that people would have said would have been, you know, say their perfect Sunday. Uh, you know, that they're going to stay home, they're going to watch Netflix, uh, they're going to, you know, just read books on the couch. When you're told that that's what you have to do and that that's an inescapable fate and that this is the thing that you're going to be doing for, for, for you know, another 12 months, suddenly at your own everyday life becomes intolerable. And I think that that was one of the things that inspired so many life changes. You know, we had people that moved out of Los Angeles where we, where we live, marriages amongst our friends fell apart, relationships broke up, people quit their jobs, they moved to, you know, Boise. Uh, doing things to just just get a change from Los Angeles is my point, but so I think that that was one thing that was that was quite interesting about it. But I think also in the history of quarantine, I guess the other thing I'd say is that 
Originally speaking, 600 years ago, quarantine was actually a communal experience. So when we went into, we, humanity, went into quarantine, it would be with our neighbors and our family and the, and the, the other crew members on ships that we had arrived with. Uh, whole neighborhoods might go into quarantine together. Churches would go into quarantine together. They'd go to the lazaretto. They would go to an external facility and cycle through that facility almost ritualistically. And that ties into that idea of a the, the religious overtones of quarantine. This was a period of cleansing. You know, we're going to go through it together and we're going to emerge anew, proven safe, and go back to our everyday life. And so it's quite interesting that now quarantine is ex almost means exactly the opposite of that. It's this atomized experience. It's going off to be alone. It's, you know, sort of hiding off in an apartment of our own. So I think that that's one of the interesting ways I think that this kind of can be both compared to and contrasted with the history of quarantine. That's interesting. And, you know, germ theory was, is relatively new, yet clearly people were understanding this in some, in some way. And, you know, and my understanding of the, of the massive pandemic in, in North America when Westerners first arrived was so much, it was so exacerbated by the fact that when somebody gets sick, the family would come around those people and then, of course, get more and more people sick. But it does seem that, in, at least in parts of history, I mean, what, how, what is the earliest pandemic that we know about? It's, it's certainly before germ theory was figured out by a lot. Absolutely. And one of the things we look at in the book is why did quarantine emerge where and when it did? Like, who, you know, because there's no, if you, if you don't have germ theory, there's no scientific reason that you would think that separation and isolation is the way to go. And it emerged in, we don't, you know, we didn't talk about this in the, in the talk, but it, it emerged in uh, the Adriatic Sea when the Black Death first arrived in Europe. At the time, Europe had had centuries of freedom from epidemic disease, infectious disease. And so this was sort of a novel, terrifying thing that had made its way from uh, the East, you know, broadly speaking, and reached Europe with trade goods. And one of the, you know, merchants really just wanted to preserve the source of their wealth, which was trading with the East, while not all dying and so quarantine was this idea that we could just sort of park the ship outside on an island initially you know just offshore and see if it was safe or not uh, because they could correlate the arrival of trade goods with the outbreaks of the black death and and the, so there's this idea of observation there you know these are merchants who are watching the flow of business there's also an element of in some regions if you would think that you know a plague is a is a punishment from god or a misalignment of the stars then quarantine makes no sense you wouldn't you know you wouldn't have a reason to implement it you would instead pray or uh, or hope for the stars to realign themselves and then the other piece is that this was part of the republic of venice and it was not a democracy in the sense that we know it today but there was an elected leader and there was a sense of public and public responsibility and responsibility for public health in that leadership. And I think people being answerable to the community and that sense of public is actually essential to public health. And again, is one of the reasons why quarantine emerged where it did. Whereas in the new world where there were far fewer animals to be domesticated, there were fewer zoonotic diseases and then and thus fewer pandemics to be dealt with. So there, there, there's a sort of ecological, political, cultural, religious logic to quarantine emerging where and when it did. 
I think one of the things that you guys touched on in your talk and that became painfully clear, I think, to all of us and certainly did to me in going through a quarantine is, that, is how imperfect it is. Right, like, and I remember talking to the scientists on Biosphere Two, and, and they're like, "Well, we still have ants that we don't know where they came from." You know, it's like they're trying to isolate so heavily. And you know, as we were all wiping down our groceries at the beginning of this thing, and we, you know, you'd still then you'd realize, "Oh, I just brought that thing in, and I don't." You know, it was just like it was all—it's all imperfect at all levels, I'm sure. And you know, it's we have some of the diseases that some of the worst diseases that have escaped have, have been from labs at level four labs, right? So uh, that imperfection, I think, is the thing that makes this so human and so, you know, the whole thing is built of humans and so it's just not really good. <laughs> how, do we, how do we wrestle with that? Well, so quarantine is always leaky and in fact, the head of the CDC's Division of Global Migration and Quarantine went back and it, when he started in the job, he wanted to abolish quarantine, get rid of it from the name, didn't think it was a useful tool anymore. You know, it was the end of the 20th century at the time, coming into the 21st century. Surely we could do better than this medieval tool. And he went back and analyzed outbreaks for which there was actually good data, which was primarily the 1918-1919 flu. And he realized, oh, uh, quarantine does work, and it works even when it's leaky. In fact, sometimes a leaky quarantine works better than a quarantine that you're enforcing heavily, because then you don't actually know where the escapees went. So the data shows that it does work, and the reason it works is because it's working at a public scale. It's working, and, and Marty Citron, this is the director of, of quarantine at the CDC, he was actually the one who originally coined the term that we all heard, flattening the curve. So it's working at the public scale. It's reducing transmission. It's not eliminating transmission. It's not eliminating risk. And I think that's what's so interesting about it, is it is flawed and it is leaky, so it starts to seem pointless because we want certainty. But as we said, quarantine depends on uncertainty and it involves uncertainty and it is about reducing transmission, not eliminating it. And that feels incredibly unsatisfactory, but that, to me, that's, that's what makes it so scientific. Science is a process of trying to get closer to certainty rather than actually kind of arriving at it. And I think that misperception, we all want certainty. We don't want to live with nuance and finding a way to make us comfortable with nuance and uncertainty and knowledge progressing is the way to go. Yeah. Well, it's, that's, the nuclear waste is like that too. I remember I visited a lot of nuclear waste sites in, like Yucca Mountain and, and Oncalo in Europe. And, and you know, scientists are always charged with making a 100% safe facility. And then someone asks them the question, how can you be sure in 100,000 years that this is safe? And they're just like, well, we can't. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting problem. And, and Just briefly along those lines, um, what's interesting too is that many of the people that were actually tasked to write about the waste isolation pilot plant and look at the risk of what's called advertent entry. So that's people that are deliberately trying to get into WIP. They're basically just say, there is no way to, to stop this. You know, it's not a burglary proof vault. If you're going to drill into WIP, you can do it. And so there's basically no way to, to, you know, to make people not do that. But there was a really interesting quote from an individual who we put in the book. Um, I can't remember it verbatim, but the, the paraphrase is basically, if you look at the, the history of human facilities that have you know, been buried or, or put in the center of a pyramid or a tomb, when you look at how humans deal with things that have been hidden away or buried, basically none of our nuclear waste facilities have any chance of becoming, you know, of actually fulfilling their long-term promise. And for yeah. somebody in the nuclear waste industry to say that, it's a bit like, 
like, okay, so, you know, well, I, you mentioned that whole project of how to market and I, and you know, a lot of the results of that, if you look at the markings that were on the outside of King Tut's tomb, they, you know, they said, you know, your family will become sick for generations. Like it's basically all the same things we mark a nuclear waste site for. And it's nothing makes you want to think there's gold on the other side of that door more than that. They didn't have glowing cats there, Yeah, did the glowing they? cats. Oh, it, sorry, the, the other thing that I thought, just thought was so funny is that the Department of Energy, in one of their papers, they actually bragged that the, the, they, they finally chose these giant granite blocks and that's what they're going to carve their warning message into. But they actually brag in one of their white papers that, that their, their rock is better than Stonehenge. <laughs> Anyways, it was pretty amazing. Nice. Yeah, I, I went to one of these conferences of the geologic repository uh, leaders, and they all know that the right answer is to not mark nuclear waste. It's the safest thing to do. And, but they all know that is a politically impossible answer for them to give, so it's an interesting problem. Kevin Kelly asks, let's say contagious viruses are going to be the norm for urban humanity. What do you think our response is going to look like in 50 years? The optimistic version or the... <laughs> I mean, I, I do feel that we are going to leave this to the tech industry and we are going to live in a world where at the flick of a switch, our own individual movements will be restricted using whatever technology we have by then. So I feel like the trend that we are seeing where private companies are moving into it and we are inc increasingly living in censored environments, uh, our entire bodies monitored at all time, that trend will allow either public health authorities or in fact companies delegated to execute on public health contracts to kind of switch individuals into Lazaretto mode, where your your movements are restricted and those around those of the people around you are not. It's not what I want to see happen, but that's what I think will happen. Excellent. Yeah, I think the I'm, these are among the types of events like earthquakes and asteroid impacts um, that are hundred percent predicted, but you know not when, but that they will happen. Um, but that humanity seems to be not so good at remembering, um, you know, just a hundred years ago that the last one that we had um, and how to prepare for it. Molly Starr asks, what part of your research surprised you the most? The planetary quarantine stuff was pretty surprising to me. Two parts of it. One, the fact that, you know, NASA straight ahead goes and says, yes, there's life on Mars because we brought it. So planetary quarantine has already failed. And, and second of all, I hadn't really realized the lengths to which, you know, the CDC had said it would refuse entry to the Apollo astronauts if they weren't in quarantine. And then the, the fact that the plan for the lunar receiving lab, if an alien replicating agent had been discovered, was literally to bury it and everyone in it alive under a mountain of rock and dirt. That was a, that's a part of the Apollo story you don't usually hear that was surprising. Yeah, I'd say that there wasn't a lot of like macro scale stuff that was too surprising. It was definitely the granular details of the stories that that, that really kind of struck struck me as well. I mean, one one detail that uh, I'm specifically mentioning it precisely because it's not in the book, and I, I kick myself every time I I, I, I say it just because I wish we had included it. Um, you know, I, I've mentioned, you know, like the lowly fox that brings down Alexander's gates, the kitty litter that that almost blew up Whip. 
Um, we went to a place in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, where they deal with very, very pathog uh, virulent pathogens that would attack the wheat supply or other agricultural commodities in the United States. They actually only use these or research them in the winter months because Minnesota itself is considered, in, in winter, is considered a quarantine barrier. And so, you know, if it were to escape from the lab, it would basically, you know, freeze and die in the extreme, you know, Minnesota uh, weather, which I, th I also think is funny because I, I have relatives in Minnesota, but it's so bleak that that, um, you know, it, 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 it's, a, it's a quarantine site. But um, they were worried that this place, this facility that they researched is actually too close to the university athletic fields and they have a very specific worry. The worry is that an over-strong javelin thrower will some summer throw a javelin too ambitiously and it will actually go over the athletic fields and it will pierce the side of this uh, pathogenic wheat research <laughs> laboratory. <laughs> and the, It's a greenhouse to, yeah. AKA a greenhouse. Yeah. But, um, and thus, you know, the, the, the great global food apocalypse, you know, will be unleashed by a, a, a university of Minnesota javelin thrower. <laughs> I have to say, I was really surprised to hear that there was a global pandemic simulation in October of 2019 and the head of China's you know, CDC was there. And I'll never forget one of the very first news stories I, I saw on this was an aerial shot of like 65 excavators building a quarantine facility in Wuhan and going, whoa, they're building a hospital in three days. And it's, you know, it's like clearly they had a different mental model than we did and, and it, was, it was borne out. And actually the Chinese then, when Italy started going through its first COVID wave, Chinese health officials came to you know, offer advice and their experience and they suggested building these centralized quarantine facilities. So not just isolation, but quarantine. If you had been exposed, if a family member tested positive, you should be rounded up and put in a centralized quarantine facility. And that's what they built in, in Wuhan and, and elsewhere in China and, and used, and that's what they thought was effective. And the Italians said, well, thanks, but that's not possible here. When we spoke to Todd Semenite of the Army Corps of Engineers, he said, well, yeah, that's what we did in the military, centralized quarantine. Yep, we knew it worked, but not possible for the American public. When we spoke to the director of the CDC Division of Quarantine in October 2020, well into the, into the pandemic, he said, yeah, we had these debates. It's a bit like the nuclear uh, repository folks. So the best thing would have been centralized quarantine, but it was politically unfeasible. So it's, a, it's a, you know, in China, politically unfeasible is a different um, calculus. So, Kevin Kelly asks, who is actively redesigning quarantine today, and where do you go to get a design? Although it would be fascinating if there was like an Amazon quarantine division. I think that actually it's a sort of a piecemeal, gradual reinvention of quarantine that is happening. We see it, you know, through some of the things that we were discussing in terms of elder care and assisted living. The, you know, those technologies are extremely useful when it comes to quarantine or medical diagnosis uh, more generally. Actually, Todd Semenite, the former head of the Army Corps of Engineers, pointed out that some of the solutions that he's pursuing are really almost just like a, a Home Depot reward shopper sort of paradise so that the kinds of things you would buy 
if you're doing home renovations, like the zip up dust barriers that you would put in your house if someone is doing, you know, maybe they're polishing the hardwood floors in, in one room over. Those dust barriers can be repurposed for medical isolation. Air conditioning units can, can, can do the same thing. But so my point is that I think that it's interesting actually that quarantine is being sort of piecemeal redesigned in real time now by people that are trying to figure out ways to make home delivery services more efficient, to maybe redesign offices from open plan to maybe going back to the cubicle model. But I do think actually that there is a obvious uh, business model opening up that would is going to be interesting to see who steps into it, you know, where people do come up with ways to reinvent quarantine, to redesign domestic houses so that they are better at allowing isolation, you know, which is perfect for moody teenagers, but also people who might have COVID-19 or COVID-25 or whatever it might be. One of the most interesting uh, examples in the book of someone who's redesigning quarantine was Chevron, of all people. And they are doing this, and it's kind of a long story, so I'll tell the short version, in order to be able to extract the natural gas under this pristine island off the coast of Australia, they have to completely quarantine this island from invasive species or, or you know, any of the normal things that have sort of decimated much of the rest of Australia. Rabbits, rats, cockroaches all have to be kept off this island. And in so doing, they have completely rethought what quarantine looks like. And one of the things that's very, that's fascinating is they actually have sort of gamified it in a way. So they worked with computer game designers to design something called Quarantine Hero. That to me, there's, you know, there's much more to say about what they're doing, but that to me was the sort of creativity, incentivizing quarantine, making quarantine rewarding, fun, addictive. I mean, we know how to design those kinds of experiences, but quarantine hasn't been designed that way. And Chevron is doing it because they are, they want access to natural gas, but no one's doing it for public health. And I wish they were. Well, and a follow-on to that, you know, there was some some of these technological things that started come, showing themselves in COVID, like the aggregate cell phone tracking data to see how well people are actually isolating. Uh, I think you guys were speaking about the dangers of some of these technologies, but I think, was is that a case of maybe gamification and aggregate data being used well, would you say? That's interesting. I mean, if it, it, if it could be translated into something that made it rewarding and also made you feel connected to the people that you were protecting, then yeah. I mean, data does not have to be used for bad. It's just that what is the incentive for corporations to use it for good? Stephen Hubbard actually asked this question that I think is a good follow-on to that, which is, you know, this, the history and the, the evaluation and costs of proactive forms of, of quarantine. And the, you know, one of the things that came up that I thought was interesting during this time was when they were trying to figure out where hotspots were, one of the things they were doing is testing sewage lines, like coming out of dormitories and colleges, and then they, then they would know where to start testing. But obviously these kind of sensors can start getting built into infrastructure of cities and start finding diseases before they, they really blow up the way they have. But I'd love to hear, what, has, have, have these kind of things happened in history and are, do you see them happening in the future? Well, I was just going to talk about sentinel chickens very quickly. Yeah. Well, so there, I mean, there are low-tech ways of doing that too. One of my favorite examples is sentinel chickens, which are the Los Angeles, for example, maintains a flock of chickens outside the city and watches to see if they develop West Nile virus. And 
And if so, then that is a warning that the mosquito with West Nile virus has made it to Southern California and they must respond. So the, the, this idea of the sentinel is, is, you know, can be low tech as well as uh, sort of sewage monitor, monitoring. Well, thank you guys so much. This was fantastic. And thank you all for coming. We really appreciate it. Thank yeah, you thank so you much. Thank you for coming. <laughs> This conversation has taken you along one of the many paths of long-term thinking. If you'd like to learn more about our projects, take a deeper dive into our ideas, become a member, or watch the talks and see our show notes, go to longnow.org. You'll also find the full audio and video of the talk you heard today. As always, we'd like to thank our speakers, our listeners, our sponsors, and our members. Our work would not be possible without you. Today's music comes from Jason Wool, as well as Brian Eno's January 07003, Bell Studies for the Clock of the Long Now. Big thanks to our production team, Daniel Engelman, Justin Oliphant, Andrew Warner, Jacob Cooperman, Forrest Pound, Shannon Breen, Casey Kripe, and the entire Long Now staff who make each of these conversations possible. Talk to you next time, and until then, keep moving patiently, responsibly and exploring the long view.